Live. Good evening. <laughs> Good to see y'all. Good to see people coming in to uh, Bible study. And tonight we're going to be in Deuteronomy, the 22nd chapter. We're going to look at different laws concerning uh, different things. Uh, there are some timely and timeless biblical principles in these uh, different laws. So just because they're, you know, we don't live by these laws. Uh, there are still biblical principles that we can gain from uh, from them. So let's go for the Lord. Father, thank you for this day. Thank you for our time and your word tonight. Lord, strengthen me physically and spiritually by your spirit to teach this text well as we look at these different principles concerning different laws. And Lord, send your spirit to illuminate these truths to us tonight that we will hear. Lord, refresh us by your word. Refresh us spiritually. Continue to renew us in the inward man. And continue to strengthen us in this way as we go through this life as believers in this perverse world and live to your glory. In Christ's name, amen. Just a quick side note. So I was listening to a podcast on the way up here and uh, a Christian man, he was talking about how the topic was we are data and what he means by that he, he was uh, basically made the point that every single thing that we do is being recorded, stored uh, what is it recorded, logged stored and used you know, whatever we do on our phones, whatever websites we visit, whatever transactions we make with our debit cards or with cash or, or just every aspect of our life, every single aspect of our life is being recorded, logged, stored, and used. And I was like, man, that is, that is so true. Every, that we, we can't escape data. Everything that we do. We live in it. That's the type of world we live in now in the in the in the internet age, which has been the last uh, forty years or so. Uh, it's become even even more. Even if you don't have a smartphone, still got a phone. Still got to use cell phone towers. <laughs> you know, uh, everything that we do is being uh, recorded and, and uh, logged and stored and used. That is. Kind of terrifying, but that's that's a that's kind of world that we, we live in now, uh, where none, nothing that we do is is hidden. Uh, if you if the police were investigating you for a crime, they could pull up all the text messages that you've ever texted on your phone, every keystroke that you make on your on your phone, they can they can pull it up. You know, nothing that, you can erase stuff, but it's not erased. You know, <laughs> it, it's, it's just amazing. Of course, you know, like when you visit certain sites, if you go on Facebook, you'll see ads for that. You know, doctor's visit, same thing. Everything you do, doctor's visit is uh, your lab reports. Everything is stored, it's data. That's just very terrifying seeing the kind of world we live in, but, you know, it's not much we can, we can do about it. So I, I just had that thought when I was thinking about this. All right, so we're going to look at some different laws here. Uh, the first Four verses, I think, deal with a kindness toward your neighbor regarding animals. In a sense here, uh, you shall not see your brother's ox or his sheep going astray and ignore them. You shall take them back to your brother, and if he does not live near you and you do not know who he is, you shall bring it home to your house. They shall stay with you until your brother seeks it. Then you shall restore it to him, and you shall do the same with all, I'm sorry, with his donkey, or with his garments, or with any lost thing of your brother's, which he loses and you find. You may not ignore it. You should not see your brother's donkey or his ox falling by the way and ignore them. You shall help him to lift them up again. 
When I read part of this, when it said at the end of verse uh, 2, it said, you shall bring it to your, your house and shall stay with you until your brother seeks it, then you shall restore it to him. And I thought when I read that, I thought about what's the saying that people have, finders, keepers, losers, weepers. If you find something that belongs to somebody else and you know it does and you say, oh, well, they're lost. You know, yeah, that, that's that's what we, that's, that's what a, a popular axiom in our culture, you know, they're lost, my game. But is that biblical? This, that, that's the principle of this, of this scripture right here. So, uh, basically to see someone in need and do nothing is to do evil. Because it says here, you see that sheep gone astray and you hide yourself from them, you shall certainly bring them back to your brother. So, you're supposed to do that. If your brother's not near you, and you don't know him, you bring it to your house, and it shall remain with you until your brother seeks it. And then you shall restore it. So, it's a sin to do nothing. So, see your brother need and to do nothing, it is, it is, it is evil. When you have the opportunity to do good, don't hide yourself. Do good to your brother. Now, in this case, I'm talking about uh, among Israelites. Now, that principle can be applied to Christians. As Christians, we ought to do good to one another because we are brothers and sisters in Christ. If we see a fellow believer in need, and if we can help them, what should we do? Help them. If we're in a position to help them, it's not just a financial need, but any type of need that a, a fellow believer has. If we're in a position to help, we help them. We don't hide ourselves. It says, until your brother seeks it, then you shall restore it to him. So, when something is lost, a finder can claim it as theirs without taking, you know, all due diligence to, to restore it. But the owner seeks the thing that's missing, it must be restored to them. So, you find something that belongs to somebody. Hey, somebody dropped $20. A neighbor. You know, in your neighborhood. Somebody dropped $20. And you know, man, the Lord blessed me today. <laughs> That's what we're gonna say, right? Bless upon the Lord, right? Well, I don't want to say name. Okay, let's just say this. Okay, you're in a restaurant or somewhere, and you found a twenty-dollar bill. You know, pick it up, man. You need that money, don't you? Okay. Now, a person comes in and announces, "Has anybody seen a twenty-dollar bill?" Nope. Including you. Nope. Shouldn't have dropped it. Should have been more responsible. That's the wrong attitude. I mean, it, it just is. We should say, hey, I got it right here, sir. I picked it up. It, it, you may need that money, but you can't say, you can't attribute that to the Lord. That's right. That would be stealing. If the person comes back to claim, now, person will come back to claim, that's different. Yeah. Or if you want to be really honest, you can give it to the manager that sir, someone dropped this money. If, you know, they come back, blah, blah, blah. You can do it that way too. You could. But the more sinful thing is the person comes and, and asks to claim it and, and, and you know, you don't you don't own up to it. You know that you found it, you don't own up to it. That's theft. That's a sin. So it's almost the same principle here. If you if you if someone comes to seek it, you restore it to them. So that's the principle here that we have. That That is how we treat our neighbors right. That's how we do good to those. That's how we demonstrate uh, kindness. Now, I talked about animals here, but of course, the greater principle is just any type of uh, thing, period. Okay? Um, because they lived in a more agricultural society, so an ox was very important to a person because they used the ox and the donkey as what? Beast of burden to the donkeys carried everything, and the oxen was used to, you know, tread the ground to, you know, uh, make the road for, for the harvest and, you know, for planting uh, everything. So, so these were very important uh, animals. So, it's saying if you see them go astray, you if you see it, you find the person. If you can't find them, you bring it to your house, and when they come to 
speak it, you restore it to them. And so you shall do the same with his donkey, and you shall do it with his garment. With any lost thing of your brother, which he has lost, and you have found, you shall do likewise. So it extends past animals. Okay? So you, you if, they, if they find it, if you find it, and also if you find it, you can put out an alarm for them. You know, APD for, hey, I found, you know, and people do it with stray animals because talking about animals here, you have some people that do that with strays. Because uh, in Exodus 23, God talked to Israel about the same thing. So uh, if you meet your enemy's ox or his donkey going astray, you shall surely bring it to him. So he was talking about the enemies. So if it's the same for the enemies, then it's the same for your fellow brother. You have people who uh, say, you know, they find someone's animal in the neighborhood and they'll put out pictures saying, you know, lost dog found or lost cat found or whatever, call this number. That's uh, kind of the same principle. You're not to take the animal and make it your own, basically. I mean, cats are different because cats are going to come wherever you feed them. <laughs> you know, dogs are a little bit different. You know, or you have people that put up signs where they have lost dogs. Just have you seen this dog? Have a picture of the dog or whatever. If you have seen that dog, call that number. You don't see the dog and say, uh, you know, ain't my dog. We have to show kindness in that. That's what God tells Israel. And uh, again, a reminder about these laws. These laws are meant to distinguish Israel from the pagans. You see, all these laws that God has given them, they're not just arbitrary laws. He's, he's giving them these laws. Remember, these are God's holy people. They are separate. Remember, he called them out from all the other nations. Out of all the other nations of the uh, world, at that time, God called these people out. So this is his way of separating them by basically giving them laws that would distinguish them from the pagans. So obviously pagans didn't do this. Pagans stole people's animals and stole people's goods, or they found something that belonged to somebody else, and they didn't say anything about it. They they took it as their own. They were not being honest, and they're not being kind with their with their neighbor. So God said, Israel, no, you're different. You're my covenant people. You're not going to treat your fellow brother that way. So we have to keep that principle in mind also. He says, someone does not just fall down, and if you can help them, then you must. They want someone not to fall to the ditch. Okay, because to pass by your brother in need and hide yourself from him uh, is a sin against your brother and against God, basically. So he said, you should not see your brother's donkey or his ox fall down along the road and hide yourself from them. You shall surely help lift them up again. Again, this is the principle of loving your neighbor, loving your Christian brother or sister. We can extend this to seeing a Christian brother or sister fall into sin. Paul says this in uh, Galatians the sixth chapter. You see the followers of the sin, you help restore them in the spirit of meekness. Consider yourself lest you also be tempted. So we if we see a fellow Christian, brother, sister struggling in sin or falling in the sin, we're not just gonna leave them there and say, Well, they on their own. No, we seek to help bring them out of that sin and sinful lifestyle. Okay, if we see someone. There, there are two types of sins. You have sins of omission and commission. Sins of omission are things you omit, things you do not do that you should do. So sins of omission are the sins of not doing something. That's sin of omission. You're omitting. You're, you're failing to do something. So in sins of commission, you co to commit means to do an act. So sins of commission means you sin because you do something. Sin of omission is when you sin by not doing something. So it can be a sin to not do something that you should do. So same thing. If you see your brother ox falling on the road and you hide yourself from him and you don't do anything, that's a sin. When you can help. If you find your brother's ox or sheep, you see them going astray and you don't do anything about it, you're sinning. You're sinning by not doing it. 
So we have to remember that about sin, that there are two, two ways, omission, commission. By not doing something, or by, by not doing something we should do, or by doing something we ought not do. So we can't escape it. If we see something that's wrong, and we can do something about it, and we don't do it, that's a sin. That's a sin. Because God has that command for us, then that's where we ought to be to each other. Deuteronomy 22 and 5. This, this is one of the very first scriptures I learned when I was in the Holiness Church. It could pound this scripture in our brain. A man should not wear that that pertains, the woman rather, should not wear that which pertains to a man, neither should a man put on a woman's garment wear which pertains to a woman. For all who do so are an abomination to the Lord your God. I'm telling you this. We do this in the Holy Church all the time. That's why you see holy women wearing dresses. Right? That's all they wear. Because in their minds, it's wrong. Dresses belong to women and pants belong to men. For a woman to wear a pants is like a woman dressing like a man. That's that's they made any law where there is no law. They took this verse of scripture out of context. And they made built a whole system of beliefs around the scripture. That in order to be holy as a woman, you cannot wear pants. You have to wear dresses. And they have to be long dresses. And all the way down covering your ankles. See, some of them, they're extra holy. I mean, they're, they're, they're just going all the way down to cover, right. uh, almost like this. <laughs> Go down as long as the top of their shoes. And those are the extra holy women. But they use it. This, this is the scripture they used to justify that. Deuteronomy 2 and 2 and 5. Because I'm telling you, it's one of the first scriptures I learned when I was at my church in 1991 when I got saved. It was in the Holy Church. So, but that's not the spirit of this commandment. Again, this is separating them from the pagans. Also, in Old Testament times, uh, men and women wore clothing that was superficially similar. Okay, there wasn't any big distinguishing between what men were and, and what they didn't have dresses back then or pants. Those were not pants were not invented until the late 1800s. Okay, so well, actually, before then. Probably the, uh, as far as pants, pants, like, or jeans in the late 1800s, but pants may have been the 17th century, 16, maybe 1700s. Pants are, relatively speaking, a modern invention, you know, a couple hundred years old. But in the Old Testament times, men and women, the clothing was almost the same. The long robes and garments that they kind of wrapped around themselves. Okay, but there were specific types of garments and the way that they wore them that made a distinction between uh, women and men, between the sexes. And so what God was showing Israel and what he's telling them to do is to respect these distinctions between men and women. Because like I said, uh, some have used this as a true text against women wearing pants and again, some Christian groups only, uh, you know, command that women wear dresses. But this command is not about that. It's a command against dressing in a manner which deliberately blurs the lines of distinction between the sex, uh, the sexes. You got some girls out here now who's so butch. They look like dudes. Yeah. They got the short haircuts, the, the fades. They got the baggy jeans. From the back, you can't tell whether it's a man or a woman. That's what this is talking about. You're, you're, you're blurring the line of distinction between what a male should look like and what a female should look like. It's not a distinction. It's not saying that women shouldn't wear pants and men shouldn't wear dresses. There are distinctions between the sexes. God made us what? Male and female. And there should be distinctions even in the way 
we dress. Now this scripture does, it says, a woman should not wear that which pertains to a man, nor shall a man put on a woman's garment. What do we see that now in our culture? We're transvestites and drag queens, which is all the rage now. The scriptures forbid uh, that. Why? Because it's blurring the line of distinction between, even if it's done for comedy, you know, because they, they make seem like, oh, it's just done for comedy. <laughs> Excuse me, that's not the point. This guy's doing for comedy, still wrong. Remember Flip Wilson? Mr. The Devil Made Me Do It? That was his whole thing, what? Dressing up like a woman. It was comedy, but it was still wrong. Martin dressing up as Shanae on his show. You know, even because this is how this is how the enemy works. The enemy is very crafty. If you make something funny, although it's sinful, people get used to it and they laugh at you. But it's still sinful. Think about it. If you can take something that's sinful, make it funny, and all of a sudden people start liking it. But it's still wrong. Just think about that. That's how crafty our enemy is. He'll have us laughing at something that's sinful because it's funny. And it's the same thing with this. Drag queens, what do they do? They go out and perform. They can sing, they dance, they got these outrageous wigs on, all this makeup. Now they're trying to perform in front of children. They're perverts. But yet, they're being celebrated. But you think about it, we see a dramatic rise in cross-dressing, transvestitism. You know, we used to, when I was in the Navy, we used to call it transvestites. Those male, uh, well, they were male prostitutes dressed like females. Some of them you couldn't tell the difference, especially when you were drunk. <laughs> but we call them transvestites. Uh, Androgynous, you know, androgynous, and an androgynous person is a is a woman that you can't really tell whether it's you know man or woman or not. That's why culture's going there. They're trying to blur the distinction between men and women. They're saying that men can actually be women and women can actually be men, or you can't be either one. You could be what they say non-binary. Like you're neither male nor female, which is a lie, of course. Mm -hmm. They have no non-binary clothes. <laughs> There's no non-binary section in the store, at least not yet. But that's still not going to matter because the clothes are still going to have prescriptions to them. They don't have non-binary doctors. Guess what? You either go to an OBGYN doctor if you're a female. Male, you're going to a regular general practice doctor. There's no such thing as going to no doctor. <laughs> right? Mm -hmm. You're going to go to either one of them. There's no such thing as no doctor. Man, you're going to be against the lady's eyes. Yeah, you're not going to go to no doctor. You're going to have to go to either a male doctor or female doctor, right? Such thing as a, a, a non-binary doctor. But what the world's trying to do is blur the distinction between sexes. Yeah, so the world is trying to blur the distinction between the sexes. But you can't do that. God has set the distinction between us, right? And you can't, no matter what you try to do, you cannot blur them at all. So this distinction is there in this commandment. So man should not put on a woman's garment. What we're seeing now in our culture is a trampling on this command right here. The world is, is taking this fist and shaking it at God. And guess what it's doing? It's reaping a bitter harvest. 
that's leading to more and more confusion in our culture and also more and more perversion. Because this is the thing we have to understand about the nature of sin. As, as Christians, we have to understand this. I say it all the time. Sin never relents. It never lets up. Sin never gets better. It gets worse. As Christians, we have to understand this. Sin never gets better. Sin always progresses worse and worse. These people are going to become more perverted and more perverted and more perverted. First, just thinking about these cross-dressers, you know, you had drag clubs that drag queens went to and, and uh, you know, you had these perverted men who went to those clubs to see these men, you know, dance around and press around in women's clothes. And that was kept to, like, clubs on a certain part of town. In, 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 in cities. Fast forward, you got parents taking their kids to drag clubs. There's tons of videos out there of them. Parents taking their kids to see drag queens. You got drag queens performing in schools now. You got drag queen story hour at, at public libraries. It went from being in private to out and out in the public. And now they want access to the schools to go into classrooms and have these perverts coming in reading to our children. And that's what they are, they're perverts. It's, it's perverted behavior. To pervert something means to make it unclean, unholy. And that's what they are. They're, they're perverts, they're perverted in their actions. So go from being in the closet to now being in the open, to going into our schools. That's what sin does. It gets worse. It progresses. It waxes worse and worse. So why does God have these prohibitions in place? Because that's what happens when you take those prohibitions away. This is what happens when you try to blur God's design for men and women. This is what you get, what we see now. Because what does he say? All who do so are what? An abomination to the Lord your God. That's why this command is so important, because it is an abomination. It stinks in God's nostrils. And this wasn't only because the origins of all this, the origins of, of, of cross-dressing were pagan. And it was part of the idolatrous worship of the ancient world. But God says it's an abomination because of the cultural price that is paid. When you try to say that there's no distinction between men and women, boys and girls, there's a terrible price that the folks are going to pay. Guess what? We're seeing that now, right? A few thousand years later. We're seeing the terrible price that is paid when you seek to blur the distinction between men and women. You got kids as young as six, seven years old, five, six, uh, five years old. You got their parents abusing them. By telling them that they're the opposite sex. Teenagers taking puberty blockers. And that's that's why it's an abomination. And as Christians, we must see it as such. That's not that's not being mean, that's being loving. Because people are destroying themselves. They're destroying our society by doing this. Men. Show the kindness to animals is next. Verses 6 and 7. If the reverse nest happens to be before you along the way, in any tree or on the ground with young ones or eggs, with the mother sitting on the young or on the eggs, you should not take the mother with the young 
He says, surely let the mother go and take the young from yourself that it may be well with you and that you may prolong your day. There's a general principle behind this. Principle is showing kindness to animals. I don't think he meant to squirrels and stuff like that, though. <laughs> Raccoon and possum and bugs and ants and everything like that. But basically, this is um, God gave us stewardship over animals. We're not to abuse them, but we're also not to treat animals on the same equal footing as as humans. We're we're the only uh, part of God's creation that's made in His image. Uh, animals are not. We have to have dominion over the animals, stewardship over them. So we have to be good stewards over animals. So God is basically commanding them to be kind uh, to animals. Now, some Jewish commentators uh, say that this is the smallest or the least of all the commandments. When I was doing my study for this, I saw that some of the commentators said this is the this is the least or the smallest of all the commandments, but yet it's a promise attached to it if they're obedient to it. So it says, you shall let the mother go that it may be well with you and prolong your days. So showing kindness to animals, what did that have to do with the nation's uh, survival. This is what Matthew Poole, the Puritan commentator, said. He says, first, because obedience to the smallest of God's commands brings blessing. It puts us in a properly submissive relationship to him. And this always brings blessing to us. God told him to take care of the birds that it may go well with them. So if the Jews considered this small commandment, the, the principle was that even obeying the smallest, I'm sorry, or what we think are the smallest commandments, bring a blessing to us. You know, we think about the so-called big commandments, but in, in, in essence, there are no really big commandments or small commandments. But looking at it from this view, even the so-called smallest commandments of God, if we obey them, it brings uh, blessings to us. So we can't look at the important big scenes and say, okay, all of those you know, are good, but ignore the small things. And we're not to be cruel towards animals. Period. Because that can be harmful to a nation. The pagans were cruel to animals. They were very cruel to animals. And in fact, you may not believe this. Well, you probably will. In a lot of ancient cultures, dogs were considered like the lowest of low animals. And even in some cultures now, dogs are considered the lowest of low animals. But here in the United States, it's different. You know, we call dogs man's best friend in the United States. We have more dogs than people in our nation. More people have dogs per household in our country than any other country in the world. Dogs in American culture have a special place. But in a lot of other cultures and nations, they don't. You see dogs going around on the street all the time. What do we do when we see stray, stray dogs? What, what, what are we supposed to do? Call animal control. Most cities have, most cities have animal control. Or most counties, uh, municipalities have animal control people. Because that's that's the kind of care that we have for, for strays. A lot of other countries, you see dogs just walking around just being dogs. You know, they're not, they don't, a lot of countries don't domesticate. Huh? Yeah, some of them eat them. <laughs> yeah, you're right. But a lot of countries, they don't domesticate their uh, dogs like we do. So we show a lot of good care for them. But the, ba the basic point is we are to be good stewards towards, uh, you know, toward these animals, not, not abusing them. You know, we're to take care of them. That's what God was showing, showing Israel. Yeah, man. Exactly. <laughs> yeah, they really did that. Next, we deal with uh, 
liability and building codes. So this is a first thing, just real quick here. When you build a new house, you should make a parapet for your roof that you may not bring the guilt of blood upon your house if anyone should fall from it. Basically, a parapet is a, is a, a rail, a rail on the roof. You know, they had houses where they had roofs on top, they were flat, but you, you know, they were open. You can fall off. So basically, you build a uh, fence or some type of thing around your roof so that no one will fall uh, from it. Okay, so because, uh, remember, they didn't have AC back then. So flat roofs were one, one thing they were used for was uh, sleeping in hot weather. They slept on the roof instead of inside the house. They didn't have indoor, they didn't have uh, AC and stuff like that. You know, it got cool at night, so they would sleep outside on the roof. Uh, in, in, the, in that climate, you know, the desert climate, it gets very hot during the day, it's cold at night. You know, you can bundle up at night, so they would sleep on the roof. And to make it safe for everybody, they were to build a, a parapet or a rail of some sort around their roof to protect someone from falling and hurting themselves. So that's basically what it is. I sure good. Sure good liability. Charles Spurgeon, with his sermon, he, he preached a sermon on this verse. Hold on, Spurgeon. This is what Spurgeon said. He shows, he says here, uh, Spurgeon shows just as there was to be a railing for the protection of people on the roofs of Israel's homes, there also must be spiritual railings for our protection. He says, many people in regard to sin get too close to the edge and fall off. Then it's too late. We need to have railings protecting us from the edge. Such railings will only not only protect us, but others also. So Spurgeon talked about these railings as far as our giving them a spiritual application. That we need spiritual railings in our life. Like he said, some people in regard to sin get too close to the edge and they fall off. They, 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 they attempt it, or they attempt themselves, they get too, they get too close to the edge, and they end up falling off of falling into sin, giving into the temptation. So I like the way Spurgeon put that. We have to have spiritual guardrails. Uh, you know, I call them guardrails, you call them railings, same thing. We need to have spiritual guardrails in our life to keep us from sin. Jesus himself said, in essence, whatever causes us to stumble, cut it off. If there are situations, if there are people, if there are devices, if, if there's anything that easily causes us to sin, we ought to rid ourselves of it and to get away from it. Whatever leads us into sin, that's, that's how people's guardrails are. If it's a certain television show, I mean, no matter what it is, a certain type of music, if people in a, a certain sinful mood, sinful mind state, or whatever the case may be, we ought to rid ourselves of that. Because we don't want to fall into sin. So I like the principle that Spurgeon brought out of this, that we need to have relics to protect us from the edge, protect us from falling into sin. And then here we have the four laws of uh, separation here, verses 9 through 12. It says, you shall not sow your vineyard with two kinds of seed, lest the whole yield be forfeited. I'm sorry, forfeited or defiled. You should not plow with an ox and a donkey together. You should not wear a garment of different sorts such as wool and linen mixed together. You shall make tassels on the four corners of the clothing with which you cover yourself. Now, again, each of these laws were meant to separate Israel from the pagans. Because what the pagans would do, the principle is, the pagans would combine many unlike things to achieve something like a 
magical combination. So they were they were combining two things that didn't really go together to try to make some type of magical, uh, mystical kind of uh, combination. So different kinds of seeds. Y'all sow them together. Just think if you sow apples, pears, and protein, just all just what's talent out there. I'm missing anything. <laughs> All the trees gonna grow together, and no, that would not work at all. He said, "You smell power with the ox and the donkey together." Again, in pagan cultures, they did the same thing. Or not to wear a garment of wool and linen mixed together. Now, God was commanding Israel not to do these things. Okay? And again, he was doing this so that they would not imitate the pagan and the occult customs of the day. So these are things to not do. You don't do these things so that you'll be like pagans. Because the pagans, what? Do do these things. So these are things that are forbidden. Whatever God forbids for us is so that we won't be like the world, so we won't be like the pagans. Whatever he forbids so that we won't be like pagans. This is uh, another principle is uh, forbidding unholy combinations. Syncretism, anything like that. Matthew Poole said this. He says, though in themselves they're small and trivial, to forbid all mixture of their inventions with God's institutions and doctrine or worship. So, in other words, he was saying that the principle of this is to not mix anything, anything, any of man's inventions with God's institution, God's doctrine, and God's worship. That's why we don't bring pagan rituals into public worship or pagan teachings into Christian doctrine and try to mix those things together. That's called syncretism. We don't combine yoga and Christianity and call it Christian yoga. We don't combine magic and astrology with biblical truth and call it something. Put a name on it. We don't say Christian astrology or anything like that. We don't we don't combine unlike things. And so that's the overriding principle of these um, these laws right here, these commands. So, God is showing Israel, again, distinction, laws of separation, not mixing things, not combining things that should not be combined, not imitating pagans, not mixing pagan worship with, with, with Christian worship, not uh, mixing pagan ideologies and philosophies with Christian truth. That's the overall writing principle of this. Many people get uh, into the minutia of these things and try to make laws where there is no law. Like putting different garments, different types of garments on their clothes, like combining wool and cotton. That's not, that's not the overall principle of this. That's not the spirit of this. So we, again, we can't make a law where there is no law. Now, the thing about the four corners, the tassels, you shall make tassels on the four corners of the clothing with which you cover yourself. And again, this was to distinguish Israel from their pagan neighbors. This distinguished the Israelite man from the pagan man. And this command was given back in, uh, I think, Numbers 15 here. Verse 37, it says, Again, the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the children of Israel, tell them to make tassels on the corners of their garments throughout their generations and to put a blue thread in the tassels of the corners. And you shall have the tassel that you may look upon it and remember all the commandments of the Lord and to do them, and that you may not follow the harlotry to which your heart and your eyes are inclined, and that you may remember to do all the commandments do all my commandments and be holy to your God. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt to be your God, and I am the Lord your God. 
But again, these councils were ways of distinguishing these men from the pagans. Now the Pharisees, Jesus rebuked them in Matthew 23 for twisting and corrupting his commands. Jesus said to the Pharisees that they enlarged the borders of their garments. In other words, this is uh, Matthew 23 and 5. They made the borders of their the castles larger. Okay? Just like I said earlier about the women who wear the extra long dresses to make themselves look more holy than the, 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 the girl who wears her dress just below her knee. So the Pharisees, they enlarged the borders of their garments to show basically how spiritual they were. That's what they were, that's what they were thinking. Pharisees would make themselves seem more holy. By enlarging their tassels. They went too far with it. They made it longer than their Lastly, here, this whole section deals with uh, laws concerning sexual immorality. I'll try to go through this uh, quickly here in these last. Uh, Almost 15 minutes. Verses 13 through 21 deal with uh, an accusation of conception and what to do with that. If a man takes a wife and goes into her and then hates her and, and accuses her of misconduct, bringing the bad name of her, saying, I took this woman and when I came near her, I did not find in her evidence of virginity. And the father of the young woman and her mother shall take and bring out evidence of her virginity, and the elders of the city. So, in essence, these commands deal with um, sexual purity, sexual morality, and also deception. So, in ancient times, we have to kind of put ourselves in this context, which is hard for us to do. Now, the idea is that the man accused his wife of not being a virgin. Okay? These Israelite men, they want their wives to be virgins. That's how important virginity uh, was. And apparently this was discovered on their wedding night because they didn't do anything before that. So they first had this intimate relationship because it says when I came into her and found that she was not a virgin. So we have to understand again that in ancient Israel, virginity was valued. And it was seen as a great tragedy if a woman was not a virgin when she got married. Because the thing is, if, if, if it was found out that she was not a virgin, it reduced her chances of, of getting married. Because these men did not want to marry someone who had been someone else. So if a woman was found out that she wasn't a virgin point, and it was more, it was more likely that she would have never been married. That's the way it was during uh, this time in uh, ancient Israel. So we have to remember that context also. Now, with that being said, if the man believing his wife had lied about her virginity, you know, he felt cheated. Because she wasn't what? She wasn't truthful. And so now the issue has to be resolved. So the father and the mother must bring out evidence of her virginity. If, remember, he's making an accusation. Okay? So he, make that, he makes the accusation. And guess what? His in-laws, <laughs> her parents, have to prove that she is indeed a virgin. So they had to spread the cloth before the elders of the city. So what happened was, it says here, Jewish women would first be intimate with their husbands upon a special cloth. Which would be uh, which collected small drops of, of blood, which are accepted as evidence of her virginity. So that's how it was proven. And so the bloodstained cloth would then become the property of the married woman's parents, who kept it as evidence of the young woman's virginity. So, you know, things crazy to us, but that's that's hey, they didn't have all the medical stuff that they have now. Okay, so. 
Miss Tina, the consummation of marriage, is here on the special call. Her gloves on or whatever, and, and, and that went to her parents. And so her parents had to keep it soft as proof that her their uh, daughter was a, a virgin. Now, the thing is, this doesn't always work necessarily, but um, the, the principle of it was the, the marital. Uh, purity, and this was widely accepted. This was widely done in the during these times. But this was showing the importance of the, the, the purity of the marriage bed as it was involved by women. And so, if the parents could produce the evidence, now say this is a good thing: the man accused his wife. I'm not being a virgin. He has to go to the parents. The parents have to prove that the daughter is not a virgin. If the parents can prove that, it says the elders of the city shall take the man, excuse me, and punish him. So verse 18. Because the man made a what? He made a false accusation. So the parents can prove the evidence, then the man was found. That made a false accusation. And then the Bible says, that's the ninth commandment. You should not bear false witness against your neighbor. So if he made a false accusation, he would be whipped. He'd be taken out and whipped. So the fine could be paid. It was he had to pay a fine also. And also. He cannot divorce her at that point. They shall find him a hundred shekels of silver and give them to the father of the young woman because he has brought a bad name upon the virgin of Israel. And he shall, she shall be his wife. He may not divorce her all his days. <laughs> no matter how that marriage goes out today. Just think about that. His wife is living with a husband who falsely accused her of not being a virgin. And he was proven to be wrong. This he had to stay married to her. Well, he had to do it because it was proven that she was what? That she was a virgin. So that was his punishment, basically. But if the thing is true and evidence of virginity are not found for the young woman, they shall bring out the young woman to the door of her father's house. And the man of the city this is in verse 21. Shall stone her to death with stones because she has done an outrageous thing in Israel by whoring in her father's house. So you shall purge the evil from your midst. This was because she was uh, sexually commissioned faint of heart. But it was also because of her attempt to deceive her husband. I'm not going to get too much deep into that, but this is because being a plan of harlot was a very serious uh, violation of God's law and God's standards. And we can apply this spiritually also when we play the harlot as Israel did when they uh, played the harlot with God by worshiping these other pagan gods. They, God told them they were playing the harlot. They were prostituting themselves, basically, to these pagan gods. Spiritually, we do that. When we go from worshiping God to worshiping all these false gods, and guess what? We're playing the heart. We're, we're, we're playing the heart with these, these pagan, these, these pagan ideologies. We're doing the same thing, basically. And that's a sin against God. It's violating the first second commandment. Next, it gets penalty for adultery, verse 22. Lying uh, with the wife of another man, both of them shall what? Die. Okay, for that. Commit adultery is death. Rape. There's laws concerning rape. In verses uh, 23 through 29. Now, the woman, I had to flesh this out a little bit more, but 
10 says, if a woman loses virgins, betrothed husbands, and a man finds her in the city and lies with her, then you shall bring them both to out to the gate of the city, and you shall stone them to death with stones. And you know, a woman because she did not cry out in the city, a man because he humbled his neighbor's wife. So if a woman's been raped, she doesn't say anything about it, she can cry out for help. Is like around where you know people get accused. So if she doesn't cry out rape or help, you know, what else can she do? Then she's just as guilty as the man if she doesn't cry out. And the man, of course, also. So the woman is executed because she disgraced her virginity. And the man is because he humbled his neighbor's wife. God says if it happens in the countryside where no one can hear, presumably, and only the man will be executed. So the rape was very serious in this culture. And it's still rape is still in, in most in the most part considered a uh, crime now. And then he talks about incest in verse 30. The man should not take his father's wife so that he does not uncover his father's nakedness. This is like a son marrying his stepmother after his father has died. Although that's not your biological mother, it's, it's still the principle behind it. That's your stepmom, man. It is. And this was considered incest, although there's no blood race. That's why I say it's take his father's wife. Father's wife is stepmom. Because if, if it would have meant mother, it would have said mother. So that's why I said if he takes his father's wife. And Paul dealt with this in 1 Corinthians 5. It's the same moral relationship that the Corinthian church accepted. 1 Corinthians 5, 1 and 2. It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you, and such sexual immorality as is not even named among the Gentiles, that a man has his father's wife, and you are puffed up. And have not rather mourned that he who has done this deed might be taken away from among you. So Paul rebuked the Corinthian church in the New Testament about this very same thing that God had forbid, forbade in the Old Testament. That a man should not have his father's wife and nor a daughter his, his um, mother's husband. So it goes both ways. A daughter and a stepdad or a son and a stepmom. Both are considered incest. So all these sexual and moral prohibitions are to protect Israel as God's covenant people. That's what they're designed to do. To protect them. And to keep them from being like who? Those pagan nations around. Why does God have these prohibitions for us as believers? The principle. To protect us from being like pagans. Pagans cohabitate. Christians don't. Pagans go around and have multiple children by multiple men and celebrate it. Christians don't do that. Christian men don't go around having eight babies by seven different women. That's sexually immoral. Christian women don't go around having five, six different babies by five or six different men. That's sexually immoral. Christian men and women don't participate in anything that's pornographic or any other type of sexual perversion. Why? Because we're not like the pagans. That's the pagans do that. That's for the world. Let the world be the world. We are separate from them. Our sexual ethic must be different from the world's. Our ethic in dealing with our neighbors, as we read earlier in this chapter, is different from the world. The way we treat animals is different from the world. The way we wear our clothes is to be different from the world, from the pagans. And we don't support and we don't promote those things that the world does. Because we are a separate, we are a holy people. Amen? Amen. Praise the Lord. Let us pray as we close.
Father, you have called us to be a separate people. You called Israel to be a holy people, a holy nation. Lord, you called us to be as believers, as saints. You have called us out of this wicked world, called us to be like you. You have called us unto yourself. Lord, help us to live as lights in the midst of this dark and perverted world. Help us, Father, to live as children of light, to be the salt of the earth and the light of the world. The city on the hill that cannot be hidden. That people may see the light and the glory of the gospel in our lives. In Christ's name I pray. Amen.